Welcome to another episode of the Political Futures Podcast. I'm Kerwin Swint. I'm Director of the School of Government and International Affairs at Kennesaw State University in Atlanta. We've been following the presidential campaign all year in this most different of years, and the year gets stranger as it goes on, it appears. And one of the big ideas, one of the big features about this, uh, this fall, especially, is the polling in the presidential race. There are some polls that are all over the board, leading to some very different results. And the polling industry itself has come under fire in recent years. Um, I would say it's in a, a fair amount of trouble as an industry, and there are some reasons for that. My special guest today is Patrick Basham. Patrick is the founding director of the Democracy Institute with offices in Washington and London. He is an adjunct scholar with the Cato Institute's Center for Representative Government. Previously, he was director of the Social Affairs Center at the Fraser Institute, Canada's leading free market think tank. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, the Chicago Sun-Times, and many other outlets. And he has appeared as an analyst for ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox, PBS, NPR, the BBC, and Radio Free Europe. Thanks, Patrick, for joining me today and, and talking about polling. Oh, it's my great pleasure to be with you. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that your, uh, your institute, the Democracy Institute, uh, has some polls that lead to some quite different results from some of the other national polls on the presidential race that we've seen. The consensus of the polling, at least if you look at websites like Real Clear Politics or, or certainly Nate Silver's 538.com, is that Joe Biden has a sizable lead that he has a lead in, in most of the battleground states to varying degrees. But you just came out with a poll uh, a few days ago. It was in the Sunday Express in London that actually has Donald Trump winning the popular vote by, I think, a point or two and ahead in most of the battleground states. So talk about your poll. How is it different from the others? And how, how do you come to those results? Sure. Well, the uh, relationship we have with the Sunday Express for this year's presidential election is that we're conducting six monthly polls. And the one that you've kindly referred to that was released on Sunday, uh, this past Sunday, is the fifth of the sixth. Our last poll will be out Sunday, November 1st, so sort of 48 hours before Election Day. And uh, we've been finding uh, across the five months reasonably consistent results, uh, far less fluctuation than many of the other media polls. That is a roundabout way of saying that we have found that the race to be very competitive in terms of the national popular vote. We've either found it tied or Donald Trump has been ahead by a point or two or three. In the case of our most recent poll, it's a one point lead. Uh, he's at 46 percent. Uh, Joe Biden's at 45 percent nationally. And then the libertarian candidate and the Green Party candidate um, make up a few percent uh, between them. And there are several percent who are undecided. Um, but what that translates to, as I think you were touching on in your introduction, is that uh, Donald Trump, across all five of our polls, um, is clearly headed for an electoral college victory. Uh, we currently project, based on our most recent poll, that he would garner around 320 electoral college votes uh, with 218 
memory serves going to Joe Biden. And those figures have been reasonably consistent. There have been one or two states that we've moved back and forth. But the reason um, for that consistency and for Donald Trump's um, disproportionate advantage is that his vote, as we experienced in 2016, his, his, his popular vote is very efficient, uh, whereas Joe Biden's is, like Hillary Clinton's, is inefficient. So Clinton, as your uh, your listeners will recall, you know, ran up these enormous popular vote margins, millions and millions of votes, uh, surplus votes in places like California and Illinois and New York State, um, as Joe Biden is trending to do now, which means that Joe Biden could easily win the popular vote, but like Hillary Clinton, lose the election. Whereas Donald Trump's vote, his popular vote, is quite efficient. Um, it tends to skew towards those battleground swing states, especially in the Midwest, which is why he won several of them so narrowly, but consistently four years ago, and why at the moment we have him tracking to do the same this time. Um, in, in terms of how we get our results and why uh, perhaps they are different from uh, many, although not, I would say today, not all of the other, uh, the other polls, as some are coming closer to our results. Um, we conduct our poll by telephone, but we don't use live callers. Um, it's a human voice that people hear, but it's a recorded voice. It's what in the business we call interactive voice response, IVR. Right. So, IVR. So people, yeah, people receive a call. And it's a human voice that guides them through it. But instead of giving, you know, verbalizing, vocalizing their answers, they answer on their keypad. And the reason we do that is we have found and others have found that it's far more reliable in terms of eliminating or at least minimizing what's called social desirability bias. Basically having basically people feel more comfortable talking to a recorded voice or which I say not talking to, but answering on their phone pad rather than talking and giving answers to a live human being. Um, so it's entirely conducted that way. We we take 1,500 likely voters, or should I say we end up with 1,500 likely voters who finish our entire questionnaire. Mm -hmm. And we do that because we do not see any point, and we didn't see any point when we started this uh, several months ago, in talking to, as some polls still do, uh, adults, quote-unquote adult sample, which, of course, potentially includes anyone who answers the phone. Uh, citizens, non-citizens, people who maybe just simply are not eligible to vote, or registered voters. Most of the media polls to this point, although some, some have come, moved away from it now, most of them have been conducted with registered voters, about a third of whom are almost certain not to actually vote. And as I'm sure, I know you are, and I'm sure your listeners are aware, the larger the sort of universe, the, 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 the wider you cast your, your survey net beyond likely voters to registered voters and out even farther to adult vote, adults, um, the, 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 the more uh, non-Republicans you reach for all kinds of you know, weird and wonderful reasons. Um, so we want to focus on those who are actually or most likely to show up. So we have a lot of questions that tease that out. Um, and another aspect of this, which gives us uh, different results to this point is part of the art of the art and science of polling in a, in a presidential election is to estimate um, the turnout. You know, what is who will actually show up? That's the name of the and, game, right? 
Yeah, it's the turnout model. And so assuming the best of intentions on everyone's part, and certainly all of the other people who are polling across the industry, I mean, you know, these are very smart people. I'm sure they're much smarter than me. But what I, what I have, what is clear is that for many of them, uh, their, their estimate of the turnout is different to, to mine, right? So I'm, I'm predicting that turnout will be approximate to 2016. It won't drop dramatically, but nor will it rise dramatically. And as a consequence, we anticipate that Democrats will narrowly outnumber Republicans. We have a bit of two, okay, so a plus two advantage. However, I also say that's in contrast to most of the polling, especially the media polling to this point, which assumes, sometimes explicitly, sometimes not, that turnout will be much higher than last time. Uh, some are anticipating sort of Obama 2008 levels. And so they're assuming that 10 or 20 more million voters will show up. A lot of new voters, young voters, people who haven't voted before, um, demographic groups that are traditionally more favorable to the Democratic candidate will come out in higher numbers. And if you make those assumptions, then naturally, you have a larger electorate, and that means you're going to have a greater turnout advantage to registered Democrats. So I believe the last time I checked, if you look at the, the other media polls, they average something like um, Democrats plus eight. Yes. I mean, some have been much higher than that, plus 12 or 13, and some are sort of five or six. Um, so simply by making that estimate, which you know we'll find out on November 3rd or later, whether that's correct or not, but simply by making that estimate, that decision, you inherently, um, well, one could say either bias or prejudice, or at least lean your poll to you're going to produce higher Democrat numbers. So, for example, you'll have polls that say um, Joe Biden is ahead nationally by six points, and the poll will be Democrat plus seven or eight. Well, that means that probably, if I'm right about the turnout model, then it's a dead heat, right? Yeah. Uh, and so how one goes about estimating the turnout model, applying that along with the types of voters you're talking to, likely registered or simply adults in general, um, all of these things matter a great deal in a, a methodological sense. And it's, and it's quite dry and for a lot of people it's quite boring. But sadly, it's really, really important in terms of understanding how these polls come up with different numbers. Well, there was an NBC poll that came out a few days ago that had Biden up by 14. And mm -hmm. if you look out the party affiliation in their model, it was 45-36. So a nine-point advantage for Democrats. And that tracks closer to a party affiliation difference of a poll of, say, registered voters or even adults who, who may not yes. be voters, whereas yours is much closer. Democrats are still ahead, but by a smaller margin, which tracks closer to Gallup data on party affiliation or census data on party affiliation, uh, which I think is what you're saying is the basis of your closer predictions. That's right. In fact, I've used, you've used the example of the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, and that is both the most recent and the best example of, of this very issue, uh, because the poll is, I believe it was 800 registered voters. So it's statistically, it's not, it, it's not too small a sample, but most of us are more comfortable with a larger sample than that. Um, and it, it, it is capturing people who are simply, in my opinion, not going to vote. Now, if I recall correctly from what I read in the last sort of few hours, 
The gentleman at the Wall Street Journal who sort of oversees the polling operation, doesn't do the polling, but he's, he sort of directs uh, the operation. Um, in defense of his poll, he's saying, look, we think that the, uh, the, the pool of voters, the electorate, will be much larger. And so we will not move to likely voter, a likely voter screen as we go forward over the next uh, four weeks. We're going to stick with registered voters because we believe that those extra voters will, the next potential voters will become actual voters. Uh, and so I would anticipate, and I think your listeners should anticipate, that as that NBC Wall Street Journal poll goes along, uh, the numbers, if they shift, they're still almost certain to show uh, a healthy Biden lead simply because there will be so many more Democrats in that poll. It's surprising that they're going to stick with registered voters yeah. because, you know, I always thought that in, in this kind of science, you wouldn't want to lean into the likely voters the closer you get to election day. Mm -hmm. that, that, is, that is the norm. Uh, that is the pattern. It was the pattern in 2016 where you may recall most of the media polls had fairly sometimes very large leads for Hillary Clinton, even up till well into October. Um, but most of them switched to likely voters in the last few weeks. And you saw for that reason alone, one could argue, uh, the, the gap between her and Trump narrow. Because I think even a, I mean, the cynical view of this is that um, the media polls are, for whatever reason, trying to push a certain narrative on the public, let's say. And so the pollsters are, there's no incentive for them to use anything other than adults or registered voters because those polls, as we've discussed, are generally going to give you a nicer, fatter figure for the Democratic candidate. However, every pollster lives and dies by his or her reputation, you know, his, his track record, his or her track record. So they tend to go to a likely voter screen as the election gets closer so that even if they're not bang on the number, they're at least in the ballpark and can stand up, you know, look themselves in the mirror up the day after the election and say, you know, we weren't we weren't that far off and we recognized that things were changing. Um, so it's very interesting that the Wall Street Journal has announced it's not going to do this. It obviously means that the, uh, you know, the Republican and the Democratic pollsters that they are using uh, are apparently very convinced that the electorate will be much larger than four years ago. Right. More, uh, you know, and uh, you know, we will so see. Why are they so convinced of that? I mean, if it's going to look like 2008, according to their rationale, why, why are you sure that it's not, that it will look more like 2016? Why, why are you confident in your, in your narrative? I think, uh, well, I, I think if you, if you go through our numbers, and actually if you go through other numbers as well, um, it seems pretty clear to us that there is no, there's no demonstrable evidence of um, a, uh, a large influx of new voters, particularly in the demographic groups that, that traditionally favor Democrats. Um, there is, if we sort of take the, 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 the pro-Democrat or perhaps better described anti-Trump vote, right? It is obviously very real. It is very large. The question is how large? If you think that it is a majority view, in terms of voting intention, then you can make a case, and perhaps you can find the numbers, we haven't found them, that that's going to be 50, 55, 60% of the vote, right? Um, and that's a huge number, and it will include people who weren't keen on Hillary Clinton for whatever reason, 
but they find Joe Biden inoffensive and they continue to dislike Donald Trump. So they're going to show up in, in ways that they weren't. Uh, you could also, there's also the argument that uh, young people, you know, the sort of Bernie Sanders, stereotypical Bernie Sanders voter, liberal, progressive young people, uh, you know, they cannot, you know, they just can't wait to get rid of Donald Trump. We don't find evidence of either of those. We find obviously lots of evidence that those voters exist, but we find little evidence that the anti-Trump vote, the general anti-Trump vote is larger than it was, uh, nor do we find evidence that young people, uh, young voters, new young voters are going uh, to show up. There just simply isn't the enthusiasm for Biden. There's the, the antipathy to Trump, obviously, but there just simply isn't the positive, the pro-Trump vote. And I mean, there are all kinds of things that are working in, in, in addition to dampen that. To give you one example, uh, that is sort of, you know, very close to home in terms of the, it is close to home to the academic community. The youth vote isn't exclusive to college campuses, but it's clearly uh, skewed that way. And on election day, on your average American college campus, there is, a, there is, there can be a tremendous effort to sort of press gang young people to do their civic duty and show up and vote. And they are going to say, have, they, they will skew towards the Democrat. What we're seeing because of the COVID-19 uh, lockdown is that a tremendous number of college campuses are will, can, will be virtual around election time, right? Mm -hmm. And that means that arguably one to two million uh, college-age voters will not be on campus. Now, they'll be spread around the country, but, but those campuses were often really important in closely contested statewide races. And our estimate is that the vast majority of those students who are now virtual students will not vote because they won't have the encouragement and incentive and peer pressure to do so. And overwhelmingly, disproportionately, that will dampen the Democratic vote for Biden. And that, won't be, uh, the, that won't be made up by mail-in voting? I, I don't think so, because, I mean, yes, some of those young people, college students, will vote by mail. But we think it will be a fraction of what would have happened. So... Uh, I mean, some people who agree with me on this think it could be a couple of million votes lost. I'm a little more cautious, well, conservative, I suppose, on it. And I would say it's probably maybe close to a million. But as some of these states in the Midwest, for example, that could be decided as they were four years ago by literally a few thousand votes, uh, it won't take that much to make a difference. Uh, and on the, the flip side, sort of answer the other, sort of implicit other half of your question, what we're seeing uh, simultaneous to a lack of enthusiasm for the Democratic candidate is we're seeing historic levels of enthusiasm for the Republican candidate. Right. So in our poll, for example, we have a more than 30 point difference when we ask people, are you, are you very strongly or very enthusiastic about your vote? It's about one in two on the Democratic side, which is higher than it was for Biden, but you know it's in the in the in the 80s uh, for Trump. Now that doesn't create that doesn't produce obviously extra votes, but what it does is it comes as close as you can. History tells us to guarantee that Trump maximizes the vote of his that is out there.
right? So we think, as does the Trump campaign, that this election is primarily about turnout, right? It's about identifying your existing vote and getting that vote to the polls, whether by mail or in person. If that, if that assumption is correct, then the Trump campaign, which has for four years, close to, been identifying that vote and has a phenomenal infrastructure for get out the vote and election day and all of that. If they're able to get their identified vote out, it's very hard to see how Biden beats them. Not because there aren't an equal number of Americans who might be persuaded to vote for Biden. It's just that the, enough of them are not s- sufficiently enthused to bother, right? There's just, he will get a good percentage of the vote, but they're going to have to work really hard for it. There are so few people to persuade in the middle. And so with enthusiasm on one side and a lack of it on the other, um, in a close race with the enthusiastic side having the infrastructure, it's prob- it's arguably pivotal. Because we have to remember, four years ago, Donald Trump had much less money. He didn't have the infrastructure. Hillary Clinton had all the money, and she had a great ground game. And that helped her. That's part of the reason that the, the final result was so close, and she won by, in popular terms, in terms of the popular vote, by a couple of points. But this time, all of those infrastructure and instrumental elements are on Trump's side which doesn't guarantee victory, but it makes it more likely in a competitive race. Well, one thing that comes clear in your survey and others is that enthusiasm gap. I mean, it's it's very clear, and I think it's underlying uh, a, lot, a lot of your turnout model. And that tracks closely to some other political science thought. Uh, for example, one of my colleagues, uh, Helmut Norpoth, uh, I believe is at Rutgers, um, believes Trump is going to win largely based on the primary turnout uh, from earlier this year. Uh, it was so strong for Trump mm-hmm. that he says historically the model shows that that person, that incumbent, will be reelected. And so, in fact, some political scientists say if you look back at the two incumbent presidents uh, in the last 50 years who were defeated, uh, Carter and Bush, both of them had very strong primary challengers uh, for the nomination, whereas Trump did not. Trump Trump dominated. Um, so Norpoth and others look at that as a key ingredient, and that tracks. That seems to track with what you're saying here about who's likely to turn out. It, it does. Uh, Norpoth's primary model is, is proven itself very powerful. Uh, it has hardly ever been wrong, and when it's been wrong, uh, it's it's a very very close call. Uh, and what that demonstrates is that. Whereas I'll be the first person, obviously, it's in my it's in my professional self-interest to say that polling is important and it matters and it's helpful. And I think all of that is true. However, it is not everything in terms of the information that we should be take, absorbing and in terms of uh, assessing where a race sits currently or where, where how it may develop. And as important as polling is behavior, right? Actual people doing actual tangible things. And one of the ways that people do tangible things, they, they register to vote, they, they, they donate to campaigns, but they vote in primaries. And we had a situation this year where we had a crowded democratic field in what everyone believed was a, quite a competitive race. And the winner, the nominee of the Democrats, the eventual winner, would be in a very competitive position against the, uh, the president, uh, most polls suggested, even if 
I think probably the more the more uh, veteran analysts realized that Trump, you know, had an advantage as, as the incumbent, etc. On the other side, and they had decent, you know, decent numbers of voters showed up uh, for many of those comparative state races. But on the other side, Trump was unopposed. He was going to be the candidate regardless. There was no incentive for Republicans to show up and vote, especially once the pandemic hit. And yet they showed up, as you say, in record numbers, numbers that not only beat the previous Republican incumbents like George W. Bush, but candidly beat the likes of Barack Obama in 2012. So if we look at how many people are voting in the primaries, we look at the registration figures, which aren't exclusively or uniformly in the Republicans' favor, but in most of the important states are clearly trending Republican and have since 2016. And if you look at the number of people who are donating to the respective campaigns, um, it's all very good news, tangible news for Donald Trump. And, you know, we always have to, as you and your listeners are, will be so aware, we always have to worry that we're not confusing, you know, causation with correlation, right? All right. And, you know, you could say, well, those those cookie polls that they take in the bakeries that always pick the winner, um, you know, that's obviously uh, not causation, it's correlation. However, when you look at regis- historically at registration figures and, and, and fund donors and, and primary vote, it, they do suggest, I think at least collectively, that there's a power to those, to those variables. There's a power to those, those, that data. Um, and it historically it's played out in terms of the, the final outcome in the general election. So in your survey model, um, let's talk about the shy Trump voter. I mean, there are several polling organizations out there that, that sort of come close to yours. Uh, and I know a couple of them take into account this concept of the shy Trump voter, uh, the, the people that are going to vote for Trump, but they don't want to talk to a pollster or they don't want to tell a pollster the truth. Uh, how do you figure that into your model? How do you, how do you make that work uh, in the numbers? Yeah, well, we we ask a number of questions. Um, we we I wouldn't say we've perfected this, but how we got into this, as it were, is um, your listeners may recall four years ago the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom. Yes, and the reason that we were able to do a better job in terms of more accurate uh, prediction than others was that we were able to identify uh, the shy Brexit voter, and we took what we learned from that experience to the 2016 U.S. presidential experience. And as you say, along with a couple of um, other pollsters, we're able to identify that, yes, this notion of is there a shy Trump voter in 2016? There is one, right? Um, And then we've taken that experience to this year, tweaked it, um, learned from our questions and answers, and so, and, and we go along. And what would, so I'll give you an example of a couple of the questions that we ask. And we ask these, um, these following questions we ask exclusively of undecided voters. Because one of the things that we've discovered is over time is that those who say they're undecided, some of them simply aren't undecided, but for whatever reason, they don't want to say, or in our case, they don't want to, to, to press the keyboard button that says they're voting, for example, for Trump. So we ask them, uh, for example, uh, will, in your opinion, you're undecided, but in your opinion, is President Trump going to be reelected? And what we found, find consistently this year is overwhelmingly, 
they say yes, right? Not everyone, but overwhelmingly they say yes. And that's one, that's one clue that they might be inclined that way. We also ask them, you know, do you, do you have a relative? Do you have a friend? Do you have a coworker? Is there someone in the office who you know plans to vote for Trump? You know, you're undecided, but you know people who are going to vote for Trump. We get numbers, you know, our most recent poll is over three quarters of the undecided pool say yes, right? Um, another question we asked, we've asked them who would win the first presidential debate. Majority said Trump would. Uh, we were, we've asked them in the most recent poll, if there is a second presidential debate, who will win that? The majority say Trump. We've asked, uh, branching out to all the voters, we've asked everybody in our poll, are you comfortable with your relatives, your friends, your co-workers knowing how you vote? So these aren't undecided. These include undecided, but these are you know, obviously over nine, about 90, 95% folks who have told us they're going to vote for Biden or for Trump. And almost nine in 10 Biden voters say that they're comfortable, no problem letting other people know. That probably isn't shocking news. But in our most recent poll, only 22%, just over one in five Trump voters are comfortable with other people, even their relatives or friends, knowing how they will vote, mm. right? So these kinds of numbers tell us that there is the potential, and uh, without boring you or your listeners, you know, we have a, a way of um, sort of distilling and synthesizing those that data. And we end up, factoring in when we weight the poll uh, an element for the shy trump vote uh, which is we believe not only real as it was i think demonstrably real in, real in 2016 but we think actually it's a bit larger this time and with slightly different slight tweaks to the demographics because in 2016 um it was it was was it was skewed towards older voters and it was skewed towards uh, white working class voters. And it's not that there aren't shy Trump voters in those categories, but this time there are far more uh, white suburban women who fit in that category. And there are uh, far more African-Americans and Hispanics who fit in that category. Uh, so for, for overlapping reasons, um, some voters in each of those categories remain shy uh, some would say afraid to let the wider world or even their closer circles in a circle know that they are thinking of voting for Donald Trump. Oh, I've seen students on college campuses and adults just in the community uh, who are for Trump, but they don't want their neighbors to know, um, mm -hmm. you know, for fear of, you know, just being looked down on or, or talking about politics. But I mean, so this worked for you in Brexit. You were one of the few polling organizations to directly call the Brexit vote. And then I believe you're one of the few polling organizations to, collectly, to, to correctly forecast Trump would win the 2016 election um, using these techniques. Is that right? Yes, that's that's correct. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we are. Um, and it's interesting because um, when you take, for example, the poll we've just produced, um, which was getting, you know, it's in, a, it's in a major British paper. It's getting a lot of coverage. And then the president, um, you know, tweeted it out yep. because the, the headline is favorable to his side. So suddenly the whole world knows about it, which means the whole, well, not all the world, but a good chunk of the world decides that they have to find real problems with this. And um, the most obvious problem that's been mentioned to us is the fact that we haven't been calling here in America for 100 years. 
lockdown or you name the organization. But what we have been doing, as I've been outlining to you and your listeners, is we have been thinking and working very hard for a few years on this shy Trump vote factor. And it remains the case from what they're saying and writing that not many others, not all, obviously, but many others who are trying to gauge public opinion uh, simply don't believe that these voters exist. Right. Um, and right. so you have the comments. I mean, there's been a, there's been comments along these lines quite quite frequently now where uh, folks will uh, sort of quote unquote experts will say, you know, this shy Trump vote is obviously not real. You know, you travel around much of the country and you'll see Trump signs, you know, all over the place and all this sort of thing. Uh, you know, how can these people obviously aren't shy? What they're missing, which is absolutely crucial to understanding what's actually going on in this in this election, is that there are a number of areas in this country. They tend to be rural. They tend to be small town. They tend to be in red states where people are very comfortable showing their support for Donald Trump because most of their neighbors feel the same way. Maybe all of their neighbors feel the same way. Where the shy Trump vote matters and where it will show up are in white suburbs outside of um, you know big cities. It'll show up in inner cities amongst African-American communities or Hispanic communities. They'll show up in places like Florida and Arizona and North Carolina. Um, and those folks, for all kinds of reasons, are not comfortable. So, you know, the um, the fact that there are shy Trump voters and the fact that they're a very extroverted and very um, enthusiastic, publicly enthusiastic Trump voters, those two concepts are not mutually exclusive. No, they, they, they exist in tandem, uh, in parallel, and they're simultaneously operating in this election. Well, this is fascinating. We, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I did want to ask you, with, with your success and with your track record, uh, why are you not listed on uh, polling sites such as 538.com or Real Clear Politics? Um, you know, are they uh, intentionally leaving you out or ignoring you, or is it a different kind of pursuit? I mean, what, what, what's the rationale for that? Well, um, with the obvious caveat that I you know, can't get inside the heads of the people who run these organizations, um, initially, they simply ignored us, but enough people sort of got in touch with the likes of 538 and CNN and the, uh, and said, look what's going on, you know, how come you don't have this poll? You know, they've got a decent track record. Uh, why don't they have this poll? And you hear things like, like CNN, uh, the gentleman who runs the polling there, he said that we don't meet their, um, we don't meet their standards. Uh, with no explanation. Uh, the 538 people say that uh, I think we have questionable methods or questionable numbers, something like that. Again, with no with no evidence. So very, very big statements, very definitive statements, which um, would probably get your students an F given the lack of um, evidence to back them up. You know? Right, right. Uh, so I think it's a case, I have to assume these people are well-intentioned. I have to assume that they're bright and all the rest of it. I just think that the narrative that they wish to be communicated, um, we, we just simply, um, un it makes, it's an uncomfortable, our data is uncomfortable. It doesn't fit that narrative. And for whatever reason, they don't, you know, whether it's institutional or personal, ideological, they don't want it challenged. 
Uh, and so, well, after 2016, you, think, you think they would be a little more open-minded. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you well, you would think that. I mean, if this was our first go at this, 2016 hadn't happened. You'd say, well, you know, they have no track record on this, and they're saying all this stuff about shy Trump voters. But I mean, you know, anyone can say that. There's no evidence. But given that we have, it may be the longest track record, lengthiest track record in the world, but it's you know a fairly decent one. Certainly better than most of the pollsters that they rate very highly. Uh, that you know we would be thrown in the pot with everyone else, and you know we'll we'll see how we do. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, you raise a very interesting question, and one which I'm you know I'm posed all the time, and I simply, from where I'm standing, just don't have a good answer to it. Well, if you keep having success, they'll have to list you uh, <laughs> at, at some point. Patrick, this has been fascinating. It's a really interesting topic, and it's an important topic. And I appreciate your expertise and, and taking the time with us today. Thanks so much. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation.